A building that stands tall and true can be an impressive thing to see. The refinements of gargoyles and decorative cornices add to the aesthetics, but the solid foundation does the quiet, unsung work of keeping the building up. To move to cooking, sauces are the refinements of the stocks. The sauces are not any better than the foundation. If the saucier starts with inferior stocks, no greatness may be made. Subpar stocks make subpar sauces. This episode is getting into how to get superb stocks, which then make all that follows so much better. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 182. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Libertarian, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Stocks need a good pot. Tall is better than wide. Click the link on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 182 to shop for the stock pot that fits your kitchen and your needs. All right, so this is part two of more of the Escoffier series going through the pinnacle, I guess, the, the, the creme de la creme, the standard, the, well, in classical kitchens, the Bible, as it were, of, of cooking. And so I'm going to repeat a couple of things that uh, for... For the purposes of explaining the necessity of a superior stock, a couple of points that Escoffier reminds us, quote, everything is relative, but there is a standard which must not be deviated from, especially with reference to the basic culinary preparations, end quote. Uh, and also, quote, it is just as impossible to produce first-class results from imperfect or insufficient commodities as it is absurd to expect that a second-rate draft wine, by being put into a bottle, will transform into a great wine, end quote. It can feel like a daunting task to cook to, to the standard he's clearly setting out very early on page one, there, there is obviously a standard. And standards are good things. But Scottfield is also a teacher and, and a food, well, I hate this, the word scientist has gotten a bad rap, but he was a food experimenter looking for the better. So in so we're going to talk about stocks. So let's get out of the way first. What does that mean? This isn't finance. You're you're taking the bones of a thing: beef, chicken, uh, game, fish, uh, veal, and 
adding some aromatics. Well, we're going to call aromatics a, a different word. We're going to call it mirepoix. And generally, from its, its most elemental, mirepoix is going to be carrots and celery and onions. We can add to that things that will give the stock a deeper, broader flavor, things like parsnips or fennel. Um, even though all those things have their own flavor, they're, they're kind of subdued flavors, and they don't show up big and bold. We want the big and bold to be the flavor of the bone of the thing. Now, there's a whole... There, there, I'm going to try to avoid the pitfalls of all the different ways terms get used and abused. Um, the, the main distinction to be made now between a stock and a broth is the stock is mostly the bones, whereas the broth is going to be mostly the meat of a thing. So chicken broth would be, say you are going to poach a whole chicken because you want to make chicken salad or you have some other use in mind, or you're going to go crazy going to make uh, a chauffeur dish, which is me being a show-off. Uh, it is a dish served cold with, with uh, aspic, and um, it's... It's pretty to look at. It's very hard to do, and we'll probably avoid that in this series. But uh, the leftover liquid will have flavor because you cooked chicken in water. And there's a lot of reasons why flavor is going to come out into the water, but it does. And now you have a broth. The other significant difference between a broth and a stock, well, maybe two. One, broths cook for less time, and as such, they have less collagen. They will be less likely to get all jello-like when they're cold. Uh, they may have some, but not, not to the level, generally, that a stock would. So, those are... Clarifications just for understanding uh, to make things even more confused in the keto world. Now they call stock bone broth, which I guess they means they can charge five dollars more a gallon. Who knows what that means? Um, let's start with some basic basics. There are two main kinds or distinctions between stocks. And that is uh, of color. One is brown, one is white. Now here, white doesn't mean the color white. White means the absence of color, which uh, is which. So, like a chicken stock may have a. a let me clarify the huh, funny word, a, a pun intended. A regular chicken stock would be considered a white stock because the bones in this particular case weren't roasted. You can make a roasted chicken stock and it's really quite yummy. But a regular chicken stock will end up having a kind of a yellow hue to it, partly because of the color of the fat and the color of the bones will slightly color the liquid. A uh, fish stock will almost be as clear as water. Uh, there is such a thing as a vegetable stock you can also make a white veal stock. Normally, veal stock would be roasted. The bones would be roasted, and that gives them, of course, that gives them a color. And in the course of the cooking, 
the caramel developed on the outside of the bones is going to come off in the water and as the stock cooks that color because the stocks also going to reduce in quantity uh, the volume of water uh, the color will be enhanced because you're taking water out pigment stays steam goes out the other thing I want to talk a little bit about is the thickening of that stock to then turn it into a sauce or a soup and there's like with probably so many things there is the there there is the text we have this coffee I have this book right here we have the we have the foresight I have, well we have the knowledge I guess of the last couple of hundred years where things have changed a little bit we also have found that the working conditions have changed we don't have the luxury of massive staffs in this giant brigade so the the first challenge will be following his procedures to the T we can so following them to the letter well that's going to be difficult in most commercial kitchens no matter how big they are just for staff and time purposes the so now we have now we, now we have a, a question if we're not following the letter of the law can we do well by our guide to follow the spirit of the law and I'm going to say yes of course I'm going to say yes so and I'm going to get into a couple of the the big things are the stock making procedure so let's just dive in so in in La Guide Culinaire the very first recipe I mean, remember last last uh, episode about the food we talked about how uh, he numbered by procedure all of his recipes and there's some I don't remember 5,000, 4,900 or, or more near the end. So very close to 5,000 recipes. But remember that also one stock is almost the same as the next. And so it's it sounds intimidating. It's only slightly less so. Um, so the first one is called estufad or brown stock. Uh, it's going to be made with uh, beef bones, which beef shin bones, you're looking for like leg bones, are really, really difficult to come by. Um, easier to find, especially at your local food store, are going to be rib style bones, and they'll work fine. If you have, if the choice is take it or leave it, then get the rib bones. They tend not to have quite the level of collagen that the leg bones have but we can't be all that picky the replacement for beef can be all veal and that's going to be easy to find and easy finding uh, the leg bones and ideally the joint bones have your butcher uh, well depending if they will some of them will uh, at the grocery store saw them in half now, either way, it doesn't matter, but that helps get in, get out what's in when in the contact of the water, and that's going to turn out to be a very useful and very tasty uh, a combination for us. 
So his brown stock is beef bones, veal bones, uh, raw ham knuckle. All right, well, hardest still to find. You can find smoked ham hocks is not absolutely critical. Uh, and then raw, uh, then just fresh raw pork. Probably something we're going to avoid, but we will want to have, we, we want, goodness, we will want to have some meat for, especially for our beef or veal stock. Uh, and we're going to get into a bit about why that is, other than just for flavor. Uh, then our flavoring ingredients. He calls them flavoring ingredients, uh, carrots, celery, uh, and in this case, no, I, mis I misspoke, onions and carrots, no celery, uh, and, and then, so that would be the mirepoix. Then there is one more part that's going to help flavor our stock, and that's called the bouquet garni. Now, one of the things that's either interesting or frustrating is from recipe to recipe the flavoring ingredients which I'm calling mirepoix will change so in the brown stock it's carrots and onions and and what he calls the ordinary white stock key difference is that the bones aren't roasted we're going to use carrots onions leeks and celery uh, the bouquet garni is going to usually be uh, things like uh, herb stems, parsley, thyme stems. Rosemary would generally be avoided because it's too powerful. Um, bay leaf, maybe garlic, um, peppercorns, things that are complementary but not in the small amounts going to take over. All right, so basic procedure, and this is one of the cases where less is more turns out to work for us is we're going to take the bones and roast them in an oven obviously roast them in the oven till they get nice and brown well Mr. Smarty Pants Chef what does that mean? think like a good milk chocolate bar not darker than that one of the things that's going to happen in the course of our cooking our stock is the darker the more caramelization we get on that bone the as it reduces which we want to have happen reduces in quantity also increases the flavor if the flavor of the bones is on the edge of becoming bitter then all that's going to happen is it's going to be more bitter when it's reduced so roasted nicely nicely brown maybe like um, walnuts or not darker than pecans. Maybe that's a better choice than chocolate. Now, one of the big differences that I've discovered in my making stocks, and it's in complete violation of what Escoffier says. Now, the basic procedure here is um, he's saying fry the carrots and onions brown in a little bit of fat. Uh, add the bones and the rest of the vegetables and the ham and the pork rind and the bouquet garni, everything into the stock pot. Add cold water. Uh, cold water is very important in making a stock because you want the slow transfer of heat to help leach the color and the flavor out of the bones. If you put them into hot water, 
then it sort of seals the bones and you don't get out as much as you want to get out and there's no point in doing that. Uh, so bring all the stuff slowly to a boil uh, and then cut it down to simmer for 12 hours because a beef or a veal, roasted beef or veal, is going to take a lot of time in the water on the heat to get out all of that collagen. One of the things I've discovered is no matter how big you cut the carrot, even if you leave a carrot whole, compared to a beef bone, that carrot is going to cook down to near disintegrated by the time all the flavor has come out of the beef bone. So what you end up with is sort of a muted carrotness that can cloud the stock and you you can't get that out. You can't uncloud it. Even if you make consomme, you can't get there's a this is like overcooked pot roasty cooked carrot thing that can't go away, and I don't prefer that. So what I've what I think is the right procedure here in all of the stocks is bones and and browned meat go in the pot at the same time. Add the cold water, bring that to a boil. Um, what's going to happen is. Fat will come to the top, of course, but also there will be a, well, you may not be old enough to remember the old pictures of the Great Lakes when they had six inches of foam on top. You're going to get this thing that's it's unattractively called scum, and that's what it looks like. It's this protein stuff that will flow to the top, and with a ladle or a kitchen spoon, you just carefully lift that off the top of the stock. So when the stock comes when the stock comes to the boil, turn the heat down. What can happen? So we want the, we want the scum. It's going to come to the top because that's what it's going to do. We want to take it off because it's going to impart both a a cloudiness to the stock, which we don't particularly care for, but more than that, it's going to put back into the stock a uh, an off flavor that we don't really want. So we want those impurities to come up to the top. We want to take them away. And if you let the stock boil too much, the violence of boil boiling is extremely violent on the stuff in the pot. It's going to incorporate it back in, and then it may not come back out. So bring it to a boil, cut it to a simmer, um, use a long-handled spoon, give the bones a bit of a jiggle, and more of that scum will come to the top and skim it off, put it in a container. Um, don't throw it down the drain because it's got fat in it, and that will not make your drains very happy. But uh, feed it to the dog, the dog won't care, uh, or put it in a bag and throw it away. So this beef and the meat. So the meat does two things, three things. We're going to take pieces of meat that maybe are attached to the bone, or we can use some really cheap cut, you know, kind of funny these days at the grocery store, like a stew meat something. We don't need a lot. Get the meat nice and brown. What does that mean? Uh, same color as the, as the bones, uh, pecan, hazelnut color. 
Um, and there, so the color of the meat is going to come off, which is good. It's going to, the meat will add a depth of flavor to the bones, which is good. But the protein in the meat also serves a bit as a clarifying agent. So in case we are, in case some of the bits we missed go back in the stock, it helps to pull them out. When this stock, and 12 hours is a long time, it's hard, so you start this at night, and before you, a couple hours before you go to bed, so that you get the majority of the scum off. Uh, overnight it cooks nice and slow, you wake up to the beautiful smell of a roast, of a stock going in the kitchen. For a veal stock, something that takes this long to cook, I would have already cooked the veggies and he calls for onions and carrots I would add celery I would definitely add leek greens to that because they're going to add flavor and color uh, I would put parsnips I would put fennel and all that's roasted or fried in the oven he calls it fried but that's just you know roasted in the oven put that in about a half an hour maybe 45 minutes before the stock is done so if we set the limit for 12 hours, at 11 hours and 15 minutes, in goes your veg. When you add all this cold stuff relative to the heat of the pot, when you add this cold stuff to your stock pot, it's going to stop simmering for a few minutes. That just makes sense. When it comes back up to a simmer, you probably won't get any more foam or scum. You might get some more fat because of what you used to cook the veg. Skim it off if you can. We can come back and get that later. Uh, and then 15 minutes before it's done, the bouquet garni, the, the parsley, the thyme, the bay leaf, the peppercorns. You can add a clove of garlic to this um, to make it easy to get. You can either wrap it up in a cheesecloth or if you have a, um, a tea ball of sufficient size to hold those things, put that in there, which is easy to get out at the end. The advantage of adding the aromatics in stages is you keep the flavor fresh. So the, the veggie flavor is nice and bright, but it still is a secondary flavor in the back, but you don't have this muted, overcooked thing going on. Uh, and so the same thing with the bouquet carne. We want, we want a fresh flavor there. Uh, and then, so now the real challenge, as if this wasn't hard enough, is straining the stock. So in big commercial kitchens, there's, I don't remember how big, five, ten gallon stock pots. Um, sometimes there are floor-based training kettles that hold 50 or 100 gallons, and those are quite a thing to see. So straining the stock. Get I get the hot liquid out of the pot and strain off the bones and the stuff. So generally, so now we need another, we need another container. You need another container. So another stock pot, um, a couple of kitchen pots, something big enough to hold a couple of gallons of liquid. When you're making stock at home, I can't imagine you're going to be making five gallons of stock. So um, it's not, it's, it's only slightly easier to manage. The most important thing is don't dump the stock down the drain. <laughs> it's, it's not laughable. I've seen it happen. It's not laughable. So, a white stock. 
There's, there's two ways to approach a white stock. You can, in, in the case of a veal, it's probably worth doing this step, and it's a lot of work, but it's, it's, it, it, it has its advantages, and I don't know why you would make a white veal stock at home, but you might want to. Blanch the bones. Start the bones in cold water, bring them up just to the boil, and then dump that water off. That can go down the drain. Then give them a rinse so all the other scum comes off. Fill the pot with cold water again. Bring them to a boil. Then cut it to a simmer. You'll still get some scum from that. But the, the first wash away, the first boils taking a lot of um, just flavors we don't really want goes down the drain, and in this case, it's probably fine. The amount of fat is probably little, but if you're concerned about that, dump it outside. Uh, and then, so the same thing applies. Even So in this case, for a white veal stock, we would not fry the veg. We wouldn't brown them at all. We'd add them again at the last 45 minutes, half an hour, and the same thing with the bouquet carne. Strain it, cool it, and you're good to go. In the case of, so cooking times. So a veal or a beef stock is going to take 12 hours. Those are big bones. It takes a long time to get out what's in. Uh, a chicken stock or a turkey stock, uh, or if you are a hunter, pheasant, or a partridge, um, quail wouldn't apply here because they're so small. We'll talk about quail when we talk about fish. I would not cook a poultry game bird without quail stock for more than four hours. The chief problem with cooking small bones, chicken, turkey, partridge, pheasant, for too long, oh, also lamb applies here, but I would go a little longer with lamb, but what can happen, what will happen is if they cook too long, and that's kind of a fine line, I don't know where that lives exactly, lamb may be six hours, depending on how small the lamb bones are. They do something called decalcify. It breaks down. And you get this, well, you get a kind of a bone flavor in your stock that you can't get rid of. So that's easy to avoid by not overcooking your stock. Now, I have seen people online say that I let my turkey stock cook for 24 hours. Yeah, I'm not overly impressed with that. I probably house smelled good, but I, I have, I'm not convinced the flavor of the stock was as great as it would have been had they gone one eighth of that time. Fish, and here maybe quail, I would really not go more than 45 minutes on the fish stock. Um, salmon, salmon bones do make a very potent stock and the obvious problem, or at least the obvious challenge is there's not much you can do with salmon stock that doesn't involve salmon. So, but a fish stock, say you're a fisher out in wherever you are, um, you're getting snapper or cod or grouper or skate or any of those 
be, um, uh, if you're a halibut or <laughs> turbo, if you're lucky to get that, anything that's a white boned, fairly basic round fish, and that yes or no, turbo and halibut aren't round fish, uh, neither is this gate. Um, white boned fish make spectacular stocks, especially when you don't cook them long, so they have this nice, bright fish flavor. Um, for a fish stock, I would absolutely use fennel. I would use all of them, but I definitely would add fennel to that because it's going to add, interestingly, a slight green hue, but the flavor of fennel in a fish stock is just fantastic. So now, you, you can, you, with fish stock, you can make, oh man, you just, you know, fish chowders and fish soups and all kinds of stuff. Um, there's a, there is a funny thing. And um, at that place in Tallahassee at the Gunners Club, <clears throat> we made, there, there is a very, very rare red wine fish stock, which is made and used for a dish called metalote. And we did it with salmon, and oh my, it's a lot of work. I'm telling you, it's days of work. It is absolutely, totally worth every minute of it, because it was phenomenal. But it is not a general multi-purpose thing. There is a thing called an essence, and that's almost exclusively for fish. And the big difference between a fish stock and the fish essence is where you would take the fish bones, put them in cold water, bring that to the boil, cut to a simmer, and eventually add your mirepoix and then your uh, bouquet garni. Fish essence is all those things are sweated in a pot, then the water is added, and the difference is a slight difference in flavor. But it's it's hard to it's really hard to describe. Flavor is a tough thing to describe anyway. But it's there there is a subtle change, and one isn't really necessarily better than the other. But it's interesting to note that you can do these things. Now, there is a whole section on glazes. And what, the, what glaze basically means, you have finished your stock and you reduce it down. There are some steps involved in procedure here. But basically, you're taking, let's say you have a gallon's worth of really beautiful gelatinous beef or veal stock. And you reduce that down to approximately a pint or maybe a cup. Now, what in the heck would you do with a thing like that? Well, in in a way, you can make your own base. Um, it can be turned into kind of a sauce of its own because it's very, very potent. Um, there is, a, I don't think, a whole lot of reason at home to do it. That doesn't mean don't. Um, I've actually reduced them far enough to put them into an ice cube tray and then freeze them so you get... I don't know, ice cubes are what, something like, like two ounces maybe, ounce and a half, who knows how big they are. They're all different. But when you, so if you're making a, uh, whatever the thing is, you're making a chicken soup or a beef soup, and you, you want a, you want to really punch up that beef flavor. You want to give it an intensity that, that salt won't bring, that all the herbs you can think of won't bring. What you need is this almost essence of the thing that's where a glaze comes in handy. 
All right. I know this seems very on the surface and not instructive at all. Um, the, the basics are simple. Brown the bones or use them white. Bring the thing to a boil. Skim the scum. Reduce it to a simmer. Eventually add the mirepoix and add the bouquet carne. Strain it, cool it, and you're done. That's stock. The thickening of a stock. Now, here's where it gets kind of interesting. And for the classically trained chefs and cooks, a good amount of discussion. So, what Escoffier wrote is the guide. If you're assembling, you know, stereo, if you're putting a stereo together, you can't really fiddle with what goes where because it's not going to work. You have to do what the directions say. Um, if you're, that works for most things. It's certainly mechanical. Do what the directions say to do or else you won't function, won't work. The, the roux as the thickening agents. So thickening agents are going to help make the sauces or the soups give them body. Uh, a roux is uh, mostly equal parts of clarified butter. What does clarified butter mean? It means that it's been cooked to the point that the water or the liquid or the not fat part of the butter has been eliminated. And for small home-sized versions of homemade mac and cheese or clam chowder or um, you know chicken velouté, using whole butter with your roux is not going to change the quality of anything. There's no, it's just not. If you have clarified butter, if you have ghee, use it. If you have pork fat for clam chowder, use that. Or bacon fat, use that. Uh, the reason a pure fat is preferred, especially in larger quantities, is the butter, whole butter, does have some percentage, depending on the brand, it gen we'll say mostly it's about 20% water. Well, flour and fat are very good friends in the pot because... All they do is get along. The fat coats every single grain of the flour, and the flour is perfectly happy to be coated with the fat because something's going to happen next. Whole butter has liquid. So some of the flour is going to be covered in the fat, but some of the flour is going to say, hey, hey, there's liquid here. I'm going to absorb this liquid because I likes the liquid. In a, in a large volume of stock or soup that can present a challenge. So pure fat is preferred for making a roux. Now, I'm going to read some of the things out of, out of Escoffier here. Quote, three kinds of roux are used. Brown roux for brown sauces, blonde roux for veloutes and cream sauces, and white roux for bechamels and white sauces. In large kitchens, the brown roux is usually made in advance. Blonde and wet roux are made as required. Uh, skipping ahead, it is advisable to cook it slower. Sorry, cook it slowly rather than too quickly, as the application of a fierce heat will cause the starch granules to harden. This will constrict 
the contents of the starch granules and prevent them from combining with the liquid when added to form the sauce, end quote. Now, that is one of the other problems is if the roux, if the flour is finding the liquid in the butter before you've added the actual thickening liquid, stock or milk, then those pieces of flour are not really available to thicken the soup. And at home for your, your quart-sized version of clam chowder, two quarts, whatever you're making, that's not a big deal. When you're making 10 gallons of it, it becomes a bigger deal because your consistency is off. Now, he does... Where did he put this? Hang on a minute. Bob Seeger, turn the page. Um, he does have a, an interesting little interior discussion about roux. And so he writes, quote, It is necessary if the sauce is to be perfect for the flavor of the roux to be almost eliminated during the cooking of the sauce, end quote. Now, the point here is simple. You don't want your finished product to have a starchy or floury taste. That's plain. We get that. That makes perfect sense. Uh, he writes then, again, quote, but if it is absolutely necessary to give a smooth texture to the sauce, it would be much easier to provide this by using a more pure form of starch, which would allow it to be finished in as short a space of time as possible, thus avoiding the need for too long cooking time. End quote. So there's a couple of interesting things here. Uh, and one of, the one of the interesting things is his acknowledging that cooking too long creates a problem. And so if you were back at the beginning saying, oh my gosh, he's not following a scarf for you. He's adding the veg when he wants. Well, you know what? I've kind of been given permission because he writes, overcooking can be a problem. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, and this is where lots of discussion comes, and you'll find uh, in the food world there are conservatives and there are not. So those who adhere to the letter of the Bible will use the rule no matter what. And and the addition of a roux will add to the amount of scum you have to skim. And the darker the roux, the longer it will take for all that to cook out. Here's another weird thing. The darker the roux, the less thickening power it has. So gallon for gallon, a, a dark roux, something that has been cooked to give it a little bit of a color, will require, that gallon will require more of that roux than it will of a white roux. Now I realize we've kind of gone over this whole brown, blonde, white thing real quickly. So brown is fairly plain. You cook through nice and slow to give it some color. It's going to end up having, um, it's going to smell like toasted hazelnuts. A white roux is just your fat and the flour, cook until it combines, cook it in the pan, stirring with a wooden spoon, maybe a minute, and it's done. Blonde roux, there's a lot of wiggle room here, but when you take your fat and your flour, put it in the pot on the stove, and start to cook it, as you let it sit there and hear it, starting, I guess, frying is the sound it's going to make, 
as you stir it and turn it, you're going to see that it is distinctly different in a shade than the roux on top. What you're making, so a blonde roux is going to end up sort of turning slightly yellowish. A little yellow may be wrong. It might be a, just the barest change of white shades getting into the browns, and I don't know the first lightest brown color, but that's what a blonde roux is for. Um, now, his point that is right. The point is that you want the flower flavor, the roux flavor, to be eliminated from the thing. And I immediately said, well, hang on a minute there. There's one single exception I can think of, and that's gumbo. Now, I don't know if he ever made it to New Orleans. I don't know if in his life he ever had gumbo. But if you've ever had a properly made gumbo, it is impossible to make a gumbo and not taste the roux. Can't be done. Because the roux, so where we would, where we would make a brown roux for um, our, our brown sauces, roux for gumbo is to the extreme. Really slow oven. I mean, 250 degrees, it may take hours. And we used to do it <laughs> Literally, it would be the whole shift. Um, we would make five or six pounds of butter and five or six pounds of flour or roux at a time for the gumbo, and it just takes forever to get. It's it's not burnt, but it's it's dancing right up to the edge. But it has it has a potent, rich flavor that it's it's you know it's not burnt, but it's Boy, it's brown. This stuff going on there, baby. And that, you get a gumbo made by somebody who knows how to make a brown roux. And man, oh man, that is a, <laughs> that's a fine, fine thing. I love me some gumbo. So, how do we thicken without a roux? And do we call it something else? So, as it happens, I'm turning pages, Bob Seeger again. So, if we're, we're going to take our, our sauce estufade, we're going to call it just a simple brown sauce, and we're going to sock and turn it into a sauce with our roux. It's going to cook for, it, it may take an hour, it may take a little longer for that flour flavor to go away. And as the flour flavor goes away, as the flour is cooked out, what you will start to see in the shine on the top of the sauce is what the, the the reflection becomes clearer and it becomes deeper and it's and just there's it's not translucent but there's a there's a quality to the reflection that you can see well oh, something's going on here that's a that's a longly cooked longly I'm inventing vocabulary it's a longly cooked stock sauce and, and wow it's nice it's fun it's, it's it's fun to eat it's fun to make it takes a long time well what if we took something that is a purer form of starch and he does identify two of them he calls it corn flour we call it corn starch or arrowroot there is a third one that could be used and that's tapioca um, and so you take this very fine starch 
and instead of mixing it with an oil, you mix it with a water, because the corn flour, cornstarch, and arrowroot and tapioca are pretty much happy to be in water, and they don't, nothing really happens to them until you add the third thing, and that's going to be heat. Now, most cookbooks will tell you that cornstarch thickens instantly, put it in, stir it for 30 seconds, and you're done. That's only mostly true. Cornstarch can take a good 5 or 10 minutes to do nearly all of its thickening. Uh, one of the certified master chefs we worked for was in, read everything. Um, said that some of the some of the Chinese cooks he was reading will cook a cornstarch thickened sauce for half an hour just to get all of the starch finally cooked out. So I don't think we need to do that at home. But the point here is that 30 seconds is not enough time. Give it a couple of minutes of cooking, and what you may discover is the amount of corn, it's called slurry, cornstarch or tapioca or ever written in water, that's a slurry. The cookbooks will read, add your slurry now. So you put that in, and it thickens pretty rapidly, and you can see it, and the cloudiness goes away because the starch is absorbing the liquid and it's cooking out. But what I think you'll find, if you cook your cornstarch-based stir-fries a little longer, they're going to get a little bit thicker than you think that they should. Easy fix to that. Add a little, add a little bit more water, and you're all set. Or stock, and you're all set. Every root tends to thicken more quickly than cornstarch does. It's also going to thicken a little bit more clearly. And more of the, uh, I think it's a, slightly more pure starch, less other stuff, uh, so it's going to be a little bit clearer. The other advantage, corn, no, wrong word, the other advantage Everroot has over cornstarch is as, as a thickener, it likes, well, it can stand being frozen and thawed better than cornstarch can. Uh, I don't know how tapioca works with a freezer because I've never done that, so... Um, you can go do that as your homework. So this purer starch thickened stock, he's going to use a different phrase, and he's going to call it jus de volier. Now that's juice of veal thickened. Lier means thickened. So you can get the same... Now there are... You can get the same thickness effect making a julier as you can with making a bechamel, a roux thickened sauce. There is a flavor difference and a texture difference for the time on the stove. And depending on what you find favorable, one of those two things is preferred. Um, saving a lot of time in the kitchen is definitely something that is preferred. So using a julier may meet your needs more than watching and babysitting a roux thickened stock for a sauce for however long it takes. So before I go, I don't want to omit the um, veg stock idea. And there are, you, you can find, uh, who knows, dozens or hundreds of dozens of versions of veg stocks on the interwebs. Um, but there is a guy, and, and he 
I think he did a version in England of the uh, Hell's Kitchen. Uh, he was he was a <laughs> I can't say those words on this show. He was like the phrase on Samuel L. Jackson's wallet. He was that kind of a guy in the kitchen back when he was a young man at a restaurant called Harvey's. Uh, and one of the cooks in his kitchen was an extraordinarily young Gordon Ramsay. Marco Pierre White was a bad MF. And I had a lot of respect for him. I still do. So his recipe for a veg stock was to take um, wide variety of them, but if, if uh, I can't remember all of it, so um, carrots, celery, onions, fennel, parsnips, zucchini, some herbs, slice them thin, fill them, put them in the pot, fill the pot with just enough water, maybe an inch or two more, bring that to the boil, cut that to a simmer for 15 minutes, add your sachet, another minute, strain it. Done. Marco was of the idea, and it's 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 sourced here in Escoffier that the more quickly you can cook a thing to get to preserve its flavors, the better the flavor is going to be. So, using a pure form of starch to thicken your sauce. Once you so here we are at the beginning. If you have a superior stock. You can have a superior sauce, a superior soup. So if you have a spectacularly made stock, reduce it down to the right consistency or the right flavor, because you'll need to do that. Add your slurry, thicken it, season, and you're done. And it tastes spectacular. If you have a subpar quality stock, there's no amount of alchemy you can do to make that better than just subpar. There's nothing you can add to that. It's just going to cost time and money uh, in the form of ingredients, and still, you're going to have subpar. So, like that building, you have to start at the base and make good things from the beginning, and everything that follows that is good to come afterward. So Marco's idea of a veggie stock, you can put whatever veggies you want to. Tomatoes will definitely add color and flavor, and they're kind of bullies. They, they hide everybody, they beat everybody else up. They're the first flavor you get, so I would, unless you know what your intended use is, I would avoid tomatoes in a, in a veg stock. You want, I think, I want a, a unimposing canvas for the finished product. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. Alright, I know that that's a lot and that's almost makes your head spin. So, we're going to cut it short here. Um, I think the next... What are we do? So, we're going to avoid all of the kinds of sauces. I think one of the things that would be interesting to do, um, we'll have to think about this, is um, compound butters. And, I, and this may not even be an episode, but... Um, so, compound butter is uh, whole butter, 
which means it's not melted. You put it in the mixer or add it, you know, and on the counter and the cutting board. Um, any number of things. So you can make compound butters out. So make them with uh, fresh strawberries and some mint, and oh, a bit of nutmeg for a bagel or a muffin. Uh, you can make compound butters with shallots and garlic and rosemary and thyme and lemon zest and put that onto a steak or onto a chicken. The, anything that you can chop up fine enough, mix it into the butter to then put it onto something that's hot, like a grilled steak or a warm muffin. Although for a muffin, it doesn't have to be hot. You can just give the butter room temperature. Though the flavors come out, a little honey in it would be good. Um, so on the steak, the the butter melts, and it's it's serving to hold all these fresh ingredients in their state of freshness and their absolute best flavor. And as it melts, then the garlic gets hot on the on the meat, and you get this garlic aroma, and the shallots, and the thyme, and the rosemary, and um, well, if you're a red pepper flake person, that would work. Um, if it's a uh, marinated skirt steak and you want to put some cumin in there and some coriander in there that would work so anyway compound butters oh the things you can do so I don't know where we're gonna go next um, I'm flipping through the page oh I know what it is yes I do soups because holy crumbly I talked about consomme last time um, I haven't gotten to the point of doing anything more with that information I'm Toying with the idea of um, making making consomme, <laughs> I have to think of this through carefully. Um, but soups is well worth getting into more than just on episode eight, which is the episode I covered um, just like basics of of soup making to get flavor. But there's lots of kinds, uh, and that's a good place to go. All right, that's gonna do it. I will put a, the related link I just mentioned, episode 8, uh, about soups on the show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 182. Um, thank you very much for listening. I appreciate you being here. You can support the show at culinarylibertarian.com slash support. Uh, and another thank you to the supporters of the show on the Patreon there. Next week, my guest and I are going to discuss gratitude and pancakes. Please share this episode on your social media feeds and rate and review the show on your favorite podcatchers. Have a good week. Aaron Gabra, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.